Before the music, before the albums, before the books, and before the films, there was a poem, a poem that would change the course of his life and then change the lives of so many of those who heard it, read it, took it to heart, and embraced it. He once stated that being different isn't weird, rather trying to act like everyone else, saying what everyone else says, and pretending to think like everyone else thinks. That's what is weird. To prove this point, he has gone to make a career of being uncompromising and staying true to himself and the artistic characters he has chosen to create. Through this loyalty to himself, he has evolved to the point of having what one could refer to as one's own genre, one that borrows elements from many other types of music, but never fully commits to any, and thus becomes something wholly original. But before now, before seven studio albums, before six books, before 12 film appearances, there was a poem that would make it all possible. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, lyricists, and slam poetry. I am your host, Jason Nemoa Hardin, and today we are exploring the life of Saul Williams and the poem that began it all, Amethyst Rocks. With the exception of having been performed on stage, the poem we're digging into today first appeared in Saul Williams' collection of poems, The Dead MC Scrolls, published in 2006, a full decade after he first recited the poem on stage. Here is a synopsis of the collection by another lyrical legend, the rapper Nas. From the astonishing poet who gave readers, said the shotgun to the head, comes this provocative look into the galvanizing force of hip-hop, bringing together the tale of the author's discovery of an ancient scroll hidden beneath a graffiti masterpiece in an abandoned subway line, along with the journal writings and popular performance pieces. The Dead MC Scrolls is a darkly humorous, electrifying tour de force as only Saul Williams could produce. Saul is every kind of great artist combined into one. Quote, I dance for no reason, for reasons you can't dance. Call me an activist of intellectualized circumstance. You can't learn my steps until you unlearn your thoughts. Spirit, soul, can't be store-bought. End quote. He was born in Newburgh, New York, about an hour outside of Manhattan, on February 29, 1972, as Saul Stacy Williams, after his mother was rushed to a hospital from a James Brown concert to give birth to him, a fact that would later appear in his lyrics. Like all children, Saul loved playing, and a particular favorite was playing with a yellow Tonka truck. Train tracks and racetracks also appealed to him, but... He never had a favorite toy as he was more of an adventurer and got more out of making up games of his own, something which was very much encouraged by his parents. Introduced to the more atypical from early on, he grew up in a highly unusual house built in 1906 by Stanford White. 
the famed architect behind Madison Square Garden and the Ark in Washington Square Park. According to Williams, the house had something close to 28 rooms and something like nine fireplaces. The size of the place meant that it was difficult to heat up and would be freezing during winter, but containing a crazy amount of rooms and the numerous spaces in the basement in which to hide, the house was an adventure in itself and well worth the cold. He had two sisters, both of whom were older than he and therefore into their own things. This meant that Saul was often left to play by himself with his own imagination. When he wasn't running wild inside the house, he was exploring the outside, trying to make bow and arrows and slingshots. In the garden, there were numerous pine trees from which Saul would collect pine cones and would pretend they were grenades. Now, as a child, he suffered from insomnia, which amplified the importance of music in his life. He always made sure to have a radio and headphones so he could access music whenever necessary throughout sleepless nights. He would spend many dark hours going through various radio stations trying to locate music from the 1940s and 1950s. The old ceiling in his bedroom, which contained a generous amount of watermarks, also encouraged his imagination. He would imagine shapes and figures and make stories which involved the watermarks. And to top it off, there were the squirrels rustling and squeaking around inside the walls that provided the soundtrack and special effects for his made-up stories. Quote, The greatest Americans have not been born yet. They are waiting patiently for the past to die. End quote. His Haitian lineage, which stemmed from his mother's side of the family, arrived at Ellis Island in 1917 and would eventually settle in Brooklyn, New York. In regards to his father's side of the family, his grandmother lost her mother and father and two sisters in the 1918 Spanish influenza pandemic, leaving her as the sole survivor in her family in Smoke, South Carolina. Soon after the tragedy, she caught a bus to Brooklyn, New York, thus allowing her new future to unfold. Saul Sr., his father, was a singer as a child and such a talented one that as a nine-year-old, he was cast on NBC's Star Time Kids. His outstanding talent landed him in the School of Music and Arts, which became LaGuardia High, the same LaGuardia High that would become famous through the movie and TV show Fame. Finding his calling at 19 years old, his father went to seminary and became a pastor, leading to young Saul spending much of his childhood in church, watching and listening to his father speak in front of large crowds. Often bored in church, he found the language in the old Bibles intriguing and coincidentally, perhaps, he also discovered Shakespeare when he was about eight years old. Saul would read everything he could find about Shakespeare and was fascinated with the parallels between the language in the Bible and the writings of the English playwright. It was apparent that an undeniable fascination with language had become ignited. Both of his parents being involved in activism and the civil rights movement definitely made an impact on him. In particular, 
He and his sisters grew up hearing about a photograph of his mother being arrested at a protest concerning New York City's failure to integrate several city jobs. This was before she became the school teacher and mother they had grown up with. For one reason or another, his mother had been arrested during the protest, which ended up with a large photograph of her on the front page of the New York Daily Herald in 1963. Though none of the children had actually seen the photo, as there were no copies of it at home, the story surrounding the photograph and the knowledge of its existence made an impression. And as luck would have it, in 2015, the photographer of the photo was selling it on eBay. Saul's cousin spotted the photograph, and upon recognizing his aunt, he purchased it. Saul would learn from early in life that nothing was given to you. One had to put in the work, which was exactly what he saw his parents do as they took him to marches and protests, even as a child. Also from his early childhood, he knew he wanted to be an actor, something he has later realized can be much attributed to his parents' love of the theater. They would take he and his sisters into the city to see on- and off-Broadway shows at least once a month. Now, being the pastor of a fairly large church, Saul Sr. would often receive free tickets as the promoters knew that if they could get the pastor to go to their play, perhaps that would encourage him to arrange a bus trip with his congregation. As a result, Saul was exposed to a lot of theater and especially performances with black actors. On the other end of the artistic spectrum was his mother's great love of concerts. She would take the children to concerts as often as possible. Being exposed to the arts and activism in such a prominent way throughout his life, there seemed to be few other alternatives for young Saul than to be ingrained with rebellion and artistry alike. Upon telling his parents that he wanted to be an actor, his father told him that he would support him in becoming an actor if he got a law degree. His mother immediately added that he should do his next school report on Paul Robeson, a black actor and lawyer, among many other things. Robeson would become a fascination for Saul, and from third grade on, every time he was given an assignment to write a biography or something similar, he would always choose Paul Robeson and would continually study new areas of the artist's wide and varied career and legacy. Any dreams of celebrity and fame, however, were wiped away from his perspective early on by his parents. For instance, when he was 12 years old, The Cosby Show, which was one of the biggest shows on television at the time, was holding auditions. He asked his parents if he could audition for a role, but was promptly told that that experience, if he got the part, would more than likely be more destructive to his development than beneficial. In no way, however, did they want to discourage him from acting. So instead of taking him to auditions, they signed him up for acting school, and from 12 years old, he began taking weekly trips to HB Studios located in Greenwich Village. Eventually, he wound up at the American Academy of Dramatic Art by the time he was 14. Every weekend, he would take acting classes, and as he became more familiar with the craft, his focus shifted from wanting to be famous to wanting to be good. Saul has referred to himself as having been overly confident as an actor in his teen years, as he would most often think he was doing a great job, 
only to be told that he was doing the exact opposite. In time, however, he learned that as an actor, he was supposed to be taking the audience through an experience rather than simply showing them what his character was feeling. This would be something that he would later carry into his writing and musical performances. Forever the adventurer, between stints in acting schools, he envisioned himself as a rapper. As a matter of fact, when he was 14, he recorded a demo and sent it to Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons in hopes of getting signed, but there was no response. His fascination with becoming a rapper ended around 16 years of age, as it was then he deemed himself too old to break through into the rap game. Thus, his focus soon shifted 100% back to acting. Saul and his sisters would be told from early on by their parents that they would only pay for education if they went to a black college. This despite the fact that they had not gone to a black college. This wasn't a problem for Saul, however, as he had only one school in mind, Morehouse, which he had known he wanted to attend since his elementary school days. He would indeed attend Morehouse. However, he would earn his B.A. in acting by taking 100% of his acting courses at Spelman, which is an all-women's historically black college located just across the street from Morehouse. At Spelman, he learned about black art, black expression, feminism, and discrimination, much of which he would take with him to the stage a decade later. Quote, Why shouldn't rap be esoteric, able to take in current events, history, and criticism? I guess it's this old idea of containment that rappers, because they're black, can't and shouldn't aspire to look outside the ghetto for influence. End quote. In his late teens, he began writing poems. Around the same time, he and some of his friends started a magazine called Red Clay, where he had a section entitled, Huh? In this section, he would have a piece of original poetry followed by an essay. Not knowing much at all about performing poems at this point, this would be the beginning of an evolution. During his junior year at Morehouse, he met some other artists who told him that they were shooting a short film. They were in need of an actor, which they thought could be Saul. This random meeting would cultivate in him attending his very first poetry reading in October 1994. To put it simply, he was blown away by the experience. It was a very different alternative from the gangster rap that was prominent in the hip-hop scene of the time. Soon, he came to the conclusion that he would like to do a reading of his poetry as well. While living in Brooklyn, on March 16, 1995, on his way home from spending spring break in Seattle, he passed by the window of the Brooklyn Moon Cafe. The place was packed with people. Undoubtedly intrigued, he decided to take his backpack to his apartment and afterwards return to the cafe. Now, on that trip to Seattle, he had written a single poem, one titled Amethyst Rocks. He wrote it with the performance he had seen in October of 1994 in mind. Also of note, around the same time he had been captivated by poetry readings, he began to practice meditation. 
He would carry his journal in one pocket and the Book of Tao in the other, as well as an actual piece of amethyst stone in his left front pocket wherever he went. This is where the third sentence of the poem comes from. I stand on the corner of the block, slinging amethyst rocks. As he would have the rock in order to keep himself grounded and leveled, even before any public recognition of success had presented itself. Despite making a clear distinction from the popular rap and hip-hop of the time, Amethyst Rocks was written in such a way that anyone who grew up with hip-hop would understand the terminology and slang. Contrarily to anyone who wasn't connected to that world, it would sound almost alien. The poem was inclusive, but not for everyone which was, and still is, a very interesting approach. Getting back to the event which was to unfold at the Brooklyn Moon Cafe, upon returning, his suspicions about there being a portrait reading taking place were confirmed, and his name was placed last on the list of readers for the night. And while waiting for his turn, he wrote and rewrote the poem in his journal. By the time he was to hit the stage, he knew it by heart, and thus recited it from memory. Though this would be the first public performance of the piece, it was far from his first time on stage, as he had done more than 20 plays by this point. Being no stranger to the stage, he was quite comfortable, which made his performance that evening one to remember. By the time he had reached the last sentences of the piece, some were crying, and after uttering the last words of the poem, the crowd erupted. While leaving the stage, one person told him that he wanted him to open for Allen Ginsberg at NYU the next month. Another person told him that the Fugees and KRS-One were to perform at Union Square's Rock Against Racism and asked if he wouldn't want to open up for them. The offers came flooding in, and all Saul could think was that he had only one poem. Almost by accident, he'd managed to make a career for himself by reciting this one poem on that particular night. That night on that stage was an out-of-body experience. He had seen the words as physical manifestations as they left his mouth. His father had always told him that being a pastor had been his calling, and after the performance, he found himself reflecting on the concept of a calling because it wasn't far from what he was feeling. It wasn't a calling, he concluded, but he definitely felt on the precipice of one. Propelled by the fuel of that first performance, he was driven to write more poems, and he did so with more dedication and intensity than ever before. He also began performing with more frequency, arriving late to each and every portrait reading as a result of being at theater rehearsals until late, it was not, as some would later speculate, an intentional and artistic late entrance. During the day and evening, he was rehearsing plays as an actor and every night reciting poems, polishing as well as improving his talent. This he attributes to keeping him from developing an inflated ego. Additionally, he decided early in his path that if he was to use the word I, it would have to be inclusive of the audience and rather be us or we. All of this was during a time when the idea of black capitalism was on the rise, especially in rap and hip-hop, and was celebrated. 
The poet circle, however, wasn't trying to touch upon anything like that. They sought after a deeper connection. Furthermore, no poet was going on stage talking about who was the best or the freshest. Instead, the poets Saul was surrounded by all wanted their words to hold a different kind of power, one far removed from capitalism. One year later, in March 1996, he made his first trip to New Yorican Poets Cafe because his friend had been there and had told him about what were referred to as slams, which were competitive poem readings. At the Brooklyn Moon Cafe, where Saul was quite active, they were doing open mics, but not competitions. The concept of slams piqued his interest, and when his friend told him that there was a $50 prize for the winner and that he'd even seen one poet get a publishing deal after performing there. That sealed the deal. He had to go check it out. That same month, he would perform in his first slam and win. He would later find out that the night he performed was the last night to qualify for the yearly competition, and thus he was set for the semifinals. He would then go on to win the semifinals as well and was suddenly in the finals by April, which he would also win and become the Grand Slam champion. From then on, things would happen rather fast. Now the Grand Slam final was on a Friday. By that Sunday, he received a call from his father, which was out of the ordinary, seeing as his father was always very busy on Sundays on account of being a pastor. He was calling to tell Saul that his poem was on the front page of the Sunday Times. By the time Monday rolled around, Saul received dozens of calls from literary agents and lecture booking agencies and the likes. He was still in school, the Tisch School of Arts, had a three-week-old daughter, and was very much at odds about pursuing slam poetry full-time, even if it would allow him to continue with acting school. He also felt that there was some great, undeniable power in the poetry circle that was emerging. It was a clear decision. He had to pursue it. Enter Mark Levin, the director of the movie Slam, which would be Saul's debut movie role. Levin was present at the Grand Slam final in April, but didn't approach him immediately. However, impressed by the performance, he made sure to catch as many of his subsequent performances as possible. In September, Levin finally reached out to him and invited him to his office to talk about the possibility of having him as a part of his next project. Levin had previously done several documentaries about prison life and gang culture, but wanted to dip his foot into the feature business, and with the growing popularity of slam poetry, he wanted Saul to co-write the movie with him. He was still in acting school at the time, but recognizing his talents as a writer by way of his poetry, Levin wanted him as a writer. He was, however, hesitant to allow Saul to act in the movie, while on the other hand, Saul wasn't sure he felt comfortable writing for the movie and not performing in it. As chance would have it, Thomas Bonds Malone, the actor Levin had in mind, was unfortunately in prison at the time. Malone told Levin, that he should have Saul do the part. That sealed the deal. So Saul agreed to both write and act in the film. 
The team spent close to nine months doing improvs and watching their performances on tape, learning what worked and what did not. Through revising the tapes, they wrote a loose concept of what the storyline would be. With a 35-page outline of ideas, opposed to a traditional script, they managed to shoot the movie in nine days. Slam would go on to win Sundance and Cannes. Afterwards, Saul sought to widen his horizon. He saw the potential of landing more movie roles, but also by already being a poet, he had played with the idea of putting music to his poetry as a way to expand as an artist. He would eventually sign with Rick Rubin and his American Recordings label and made a book deal with Simon & Schuster soon thereafter. Now, when he did meet up with Rick Rubin, whom Saul had sent a demo when he was 14 years old, as mentioned earlier, he said to Rubin, jokingly, that it took him an extremely long time to respond to that demo cassette. In fact, it had taken 14 years to get Rubin's attention, but they would soon start recording, and what followed was his future as a recording artist. As usual, I will leave you with one final quote from the master slam poet himself. We are unraveling our navels so that we may ingest the sun. We are not afraid of the darkness. We trust that the moon shall guide us. We are determining the future at this very moment. We know that the heart is the philosopher's stone. Our music is our alchemy. End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Moore Harden. We here at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash house of words. Until next time. Keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Crystal M. Sanchez. Narrated and written by me, Jason M. Moorharden. And music by Creature9 and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Crystal M. Sanchez and Jason M. Moorharden.